Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we have a special episode for you with Dr. Timothy Keller. Three years ago, Dr. Keller and I talked about collecting the radio addresses of J. Gresham Machen into a single-volume introduction to the Christian faith. Now, that book is finally being published. For the next few episodes, Dr. Keller and I are going to talk about what makes this book so exceptionally special. You can pre-order it for 50% off by clicking the link in the episode description or visiting wtsbooks.com forward slash things unseen. Now, let's talk with Dr. Keller. Dr. Keller, thank you so much for joining us here on Ministry Network. I am so glad to be with you, James. You know, I think it's been three years since you and I first started talking about this book. Well, yes, and I, I do know that publishing is complicated, but I think three years ago I wrote this introduction. Uh, it's not the only way to write an introduction, but it was partly to introduce the book and also partly to explain its value, what its value has been to me. And so I, I think that's what we're talking about today. To open us up, can you give us a brief overview of the book and what makes it so unique? I think this new book, which is a new old book by J. Gresham Machen, Things Unseen, uh, the term, by the way, taken from the very first of the talks, is unique because it is a systematic theology, you might say, written for a popular audience, and yet so unique because it was broadcast not just to Christians, it's not just an instructional book, but it was really supposed to be theology for the masses, theology for believers as well as non-believers. It was instructional. It was also to be persuasive. It was supposed to be edifying because it's he often talks so wonderfully about how much he how much this theology has changed his life. What's unique of course is that they've never all these talks have never been put into one volume. Seven of them have never been published at all. Uh, you have a an unfinished and yet pretty it's still pretty comprehensive systematic theology of 50 to 52 chapters. And it is a remarkable accomplishment to bring it together and edit it, but it was a remarkable accomplishment for Machen. And even though we really wish he could have finished it, nevertheless, what he produced is really important for preachers today and readers today. For those who may not know, who was Machen? I am not an expert on this, but J. Gresson Machen, to begin with, was a New Testament scholar, world-class New Testament professor and scholar at Princeton Seminary. He had probably two of his most famous books and well-known books and great books were The Origin of Paul's Religion and The Virgin Birth. And those are both great acts of scholarship, works of scholarship that were, uh, he used all the tools of modern scholarship to basically come to orthodox doctrinal positions on Paul and on the Word of God and on the Incarnation. But then in the 20s, he became very convinced, 1920s, very convinced that Inside mainline Christianity, there was a, you might say, the, the large denominations. There was movements, what he, what, back then we would just call it liberal Christianity. Doctrinal changes that he thought were really extremely serious, that the very, the essence of the gospel was at stake. And he began to oppose them. And in that sense, he became political in the sense of ecclesiastic politically. He got very involved in the work of the church, trying to oppose these changes it led to him actually being essentially kicked out of the his mainline Presbyterian church, the PCUSA, and he founded both Westminster Seminary, 
and also started the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And then died, we talk about this, he died very untimely, only in his 50s, while he was producing these radio talks that we're going to be talking about. New Year's Day, 1937, is when he died. Can you give us a little bit of the history behind these essays in particular? Well, I can tell you what we know, and the reality is we don't know a lot. You have John Murray, who wrote a, a, uh, in 1965, when the second volume of these addresses came out in Britain, he wrote an introduction to the British edition. You've got Ned Stonehouse making a few remarks about it in his biography. And then, if you, of course, you have Machen himself did write uh, introductions to the first and second volume of these things. And when you put all that together, first of all, you get the idea that it's probable that the idea came from Ed Ryan, who was the chairman of the board of trustees of Westminster. And probably Ed Ryan saw this as a way of promoting Westminster Seminary as a way of getting it on the map, letting people know about it, promoting it. And there are a couple places, especially in some of the uh, some of the talks that I'd never seen before that had never been published until you put them into this volume, where you actually called it the Westminster Seminary Hour. And my guess is that that was the original idea in the mind of the fundraiser and the board of trustees chairman. The way Machen explained it, though, that might have been the occasion, but I'm not sure it was the main cause. Because what he said at one point, he says, I believe that Christian theology is not just to be taught in the classroom. And then he says, but it's to be preached to this generation in a positive way. Then he turns around and admits that this, I don't mean that these are sermons, because they're not. They're not expositions of scripture. They were not evidently broadcast in the morning on Sunday morning. Because in that case, I think Machen, his ecclesiology was too too deep. He knew that if you do sermons on Sunday morning, you're just asking people to stay home and listen to the sermon. Instead, these were afternoon topical messages, basically a systematic theology for lay people. But it was intriguing that in his introduction to the second volume of these, he says, I'm here to preach them. So, and then he says, but I know these aren't sermons. What it means is I'm going to expound them in the most popular way possible, the most accessible way possible to the whole population. And I believe that I can take real sound doctrine and communicate it in a way that lay people can understand and actually have their lives changed by it. So it's intriguing. It's a, it was a kind of preaching, but it wasn't exactly preaching. It was public lectures on systematic theology that he thought were going to be persuasive to people who weren't convinced of them and illuminating for people who were. You know, this book is strikingly similar to Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Yes, it's interesting, by the way. You know, Paul Woolley, who's one of the original faculty at Westminster, reviewed C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity in a very Westminster way. First of all, criticized that Lewis wasn't reformed. He was kind of a semi-Pelagian. So he criticized him doctrinally, but then he actually said it was a brilliant statement, that C.S. Lewis, a brilliant statement of reasons to believe in Christianity written at the most popular level. And I agree that the only, the only thing like Lewis's radio talks on BBC was what Machen was doing. The difference, of course, is that Lewis was a world-class scholar, but not a theologian. Whereas Machen was a world-class scholar and showed, because he was so brilliant, he was able to make things simple. I had a teacher some years ago who said, simplicity lies on the far side of complexity and on the near side is simple-mindedness. Now think about that for a minute. When you don't know much about a subject, you speak simplistically. When you know more about the subject, you kind of very often get lost in complexity. It's like if you're doing your PhD somewhere and you try to explain it to your mother and she just can't follow you. Because even though you're learning at a high level, you actually haven't gotten to the place where eventually, if you really master something, 
you get to the place where you can speak about it simply in simple language again. And what you see that with Lewis and with Machen, though Machen is way better at it, at the doctrinal side, because he was actually a theologian, whereas Lewis was just a general scholar. These essays really are interesting because they sort of cut across genres. There's some apologetics, there's some doctrine, there's some biblical exegesis. Can you help us understand some of the different angles that Machen is taking to approach his topic in this book? Well, there's two things, and this is, we're, we're getting a little closer to how Machen shaped me and my ministry here in New York, but I'm not going to go there just yet, but we're getting close to it. The first year, Machen was dealing with the doctrines, just the way a systematic theology would be laid out. He's dealing with the doctrines of God and of Scripture. Is there a God? How do we know about God? How do we know things from God? So he's talking about general revelation, special revelation, and the existence of God. Now, that first year, the people who don't believe in the Bible or in God are either they're nominal Christians or they're atheists or they're skeptics. And the first year, therefore, was, I would say, very, very evangelistic. Every single time he was actually trying to convince people. In fact, I'll take you a minute and a minute I'll go to the very first one of the talks. He's actually trying to say that it's extremely important that more than anything else to understand about God and what God has to say about the human condition. And so in the very beginning, he's actually trying to make a case that God is relevant, that the first talk is called the present emergency, you know, and its solution, you know, the present emergency. And the present emergency in the 30s was we've had a recession and it looked like we're going into a world war. So you're halfway between the greatest depression in history and the greatest war in history, and you're halfway in the middle. And he starts by saying, most people are saying, because of the present emergency, the one thing we don't need, we need something practical. We don't need to be talking about God and the other world. And at that point, he's trying to say, you need exactly to know about God and the other world, because that's our lack of orientation to unseen things is the reason we're in the present emergency. Now, at that level, he's really at an apologetic level. I mean, he's basically trying to convince people that Christianity matters. Then he moves on to try to talk why there is a God and why there, you know, why we can trust the scripture. And that's year one. Highly evangelistic, very apologetic. But see, when you get to year two and he's talking about the doctrine of sin and Christ and grace, now he's actually talking, I say, he's not so much talking to people who don't believe at all, because he's already laid that foundation. Now he's actually trying to invite, I think, legalistic Christians into the doctrines of grace. And so the first year, he was trying to, I think, make non-believers into believers. And the second year, he's mainly trying to make believers into Reformed Christians. And actually, I actually think that that's, frankly, the two things that I should be doing as a minister, as a preacher. I should basically be talking... There's a third group, and that is the people who are already... They got their theology together, and now, how do you grow as a Christian? But you've got non-Christians you've got to turn into Christians, and you've got Christians who you've got to help them understand the doctrines of grace, and then you've got that people understand that, that need to grow. And so that's how he did I don't know where he would have gone if he'd actually lived long enough to do all of year three and all of year four, but that's why it's very multifarious. There is apologetics. There is instruction. Sometimes he's arguing with Christians to become Reformed. Sometimes he's arguing with non-Christians to become Christians. So, And you know what? He lets the doctrine determine that. He lets the doctrine determine it. So the, the early stages of systematic theology is talking about how do we know things, talking about epistemology and ontology and all this stuff that is very basic. But then when he gets into soteriology, he's arguing with other Christians who he would say would have, he's very respectful. He actually talks about you can have real evangelical, he uses the word evangelical fellowship with Arminians. He's got a place where he says that, oh, reformed people, 
He says, we can have evangelical fellowship with Arminians. He says, but I do believe that Arminianism is a major misstep. So he does, you know, he's Draco Sermachin, and he's telling you where you're wrong. But there's a graciousness here that maybe he wouldn't have shown in an ecclesiastical court when he's dealing with pastors who should know better. But when he's talking to the world, he didn't have that abrasiveness. I didn't see it at all. As you said, he didn't actually finish the whole series. It was supposed to be four volumes. At least. Yeah. John Murray said, I was just reading, getting ready for our little talk today. John said he had contemplated at least four such books. So, and Murray was, in the very first book, Machen actually says, thank you to John Murray of the Systematics Department at Westminster, who gave me advice on this book. So Murray was talking with him all that time, so Murray would know. So it was either four, three or four, maybe five volumes. Because he passed away at such a young age, a lot of these talks fell into obscurity. You know, they didn't get the large audience that C.S. Lewis's radio talks received when they were turned into a book, Mere Christianity. So how did you first stumble on these essays by Machen? I'm not sure where I originally found them. I mean, I'm, I was trying to look at these books. Did they look old to you? Is that, is, huh? Does that look old to you? Yeah, they look well used. Yeah, and they are well used. This is the Banner Truth Edition. This is the Christian view of man that came out in Britain. This is the original... Christian Faith in the Modern World that Erdman's put out. From what I can tell, I bought them right after seminary, which for me would have been, it would have meant the mid-1970s or late 1970s. And I do remember reading them and appreciating them a lot and learning from them and using illustrations from them. But what I think you all find interesting, that's why I'm going to talk about it here. When I came to New York City, the way Redeemer started was kind of unusual. There was a group of about, there was a ministry here that had led maybe 30 young urban professionals to Christ. Now, we're talking about the late 1980s. And they were brand new Christians. They actually hadn't found a church home yet. And when I started the church, these 30 people came, and they're all new Christians. But as you know, single people in a city have lots of other single friends. For a Christian family to invite a non-Christian family to church, for that non-Christian family to come to church, it's a complicated decision because everybody in that family needs to want to come. You know, if the husband wants to come, the wife doesn't. Or if the parents want to come, the kids don't doesn't happen. But it's way easier, since singles make unilateral decisions by themselves, for a Christian single person to invite two or three non-Christian friends and one or two of them will come. So to my shock, even though we started relatively small when I started my church in 1989, we had about 50 or 60 people present, which is about normal, but at least half of them were non-Christians every single week. So when I was, it was exciting, but it was also kind of disorienting because I'm saying, now how do I preach every Sunday to half Christians, half non-Christians. On the one hand, I rejected, and even back then, I rejected the Willow Creek approach. And the Willow Creek approach is that on Sundays you have secret services and your talks are not Bible expositions. They are very light, practical talks in which you bring Jesus in at the end, but you don't do exposition. On the other hand, I would say my model was probably James Montgomery Boyce at 10th Presbyterian Church. I sometimes preached down there when I was on the faculty at Westminster in the late, in the mid-80s. I knew Jim a bit, and he was my model, and he was a great expositor. But I also realized when I got to New York, I couldn't do what he did either. It ignored the non-Christians too much. So I actually found three different sources that gave me a whole different approach to how to preach. I was looking for a way to preach accessibly to non-Christians that really listened to non-Christians and even addressed them, and yet the address was an exposition of Scripture and a real solid doctrine. 
And weirdly enough, these are the three places. I didn't have any contemporary American models, but I found Jay Gresham. I went back to Machen, and I realized here is somebody, though they're not expositions, especially the first year, but even the second year. What he's doing is very accessibly, he's expounding doctrine, but he knows the other person is going to, the, the, a lot of listeners are skeptical. So he stops and says, now I know a lot of you think this, but please consider this. So it's very biblical and doctrinal, but very accessible and shows that uh, it makes the non-Christian feel like you're really engaging with me. The other is, by the way, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, I discovered. Sunday morning, his sermon was an exposition, but it was mainly focused on believers. But Sunday night, people from all over London who went to other churches would bring their non-Christian friends to go to his evening service. I heard at one point he would preach to 1,000 people in the morning and 2,000 at night. And his evening messages were usually from the Old Testament because he believed that the Old Testament were more narrative story form of the principles you find in the New Testament. He actually said the New Testament, you get it in principle. The Old Testament, you get it in story form. And what he did was he said, I privileged to some degree. I, I've read this. He says, I looked at the non-Christians a little bit more than the Christians. In the morning, I looked at the Christians more than the non-Christians. I was expounding doctrine, but always with an evangelistic side. So I discovered that if you got a Lloyd-Jones sermon, he always started every one of his sermons I should like to call your attention this morning or this evening to the words of Colossians. And if he said evening, I knew I had I had an evangelistic-oriented message, very similar to Machen. The other is Dick Lucas, who was a rector of also of St. Helens a Church at Bishopsgate. He did weekday Bible expositions for men, for businessmen, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. And they were real expositions, but they also had that evangelistic side. So all three of these guys gave me a way of not preaching evangelistic messages, but preaching, expositing the text and preaching doctrine, systematic doctrine, but doing it in a way that handled objections and showed sympathy for objections. And yet at the same time, in fact, I can show you, and they had a very, very clear way of trying to persuade people. So Machen was one of the three, and I had to craft a different model. And what we did was we found that basically we had so many non-Christians present that the ones who were interested after church, we said, if you want to stick around and ask questions, I would do a question and answer time. And then if they came to that after a few weeks, I would try to get them into another class after the morning worship called Credibility of Christianity that was taught by a pastor and was trying to make the case for Christianity. And after that, if they actually became Christians... There was a third class. It was the question and answer, credibility, and a third class called Basics of the Christian Faith. And actually, over the first four years, probably two or three hundred people became Christians and went through that. But it started with a way of preaching that wasn't Willow Creek, but it wasn't traditional exposition. It was what I learned from Machen, Lloyd-Jones, and Dick Lucas, which, yeah, I think, I, and I think you could still do that, to be honest with you. Though I do think there's more hostility to the Christian faith than ever, and it's harder to get non-Christians to show up in church. And I think more and more it's going to have to happen through one-on-one individual. Evangelism is going to have to happen more often through relationships than bringing your non-Christian friend to hear the big speaker. Nevertheless, I believe those three sources, two British and one American, but the American was not trying to do either evangelism or classroom instruction, but was trying to do a publicly accessible communication of Christian theology to the whole world. And I, you know, they were, all three of these guys were doing something unique and they helped me. So I'm, I'm holding forth because I owe them a lot and I owe Machen a lot. 
Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Dr. Timothy Keller. In the meantime, make sure to pre-order Things Unseen by J. Gresham Machen. You can get it for 50% off by visiting wtsbooks.com forward slash things unseen. Or you can click the link in our description. Talk to you next week.